Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and as always, I'm joined by Greg. How are you today, Greg? I'm very well. Very well indeed. Uh, you might, when you listen to my audio, you might hear me say a second ago, oh, what's going on? Because my internet, for some reason, jumped over. But it's all back on now. So, <laughs> so all is well. well. What have you been up to? Fantastic. What have you been up to? I've been um, researching this podcast, basically. Going down a, a rabbit hole of that. I actually find the original pilot episode that we recorded for this podcast about two years ago and then we ditched it for quite a while and we reviewed what we're going to be reviewing today listening back to it oh yeah that was that was tough but uh it was good and i completely forgot that i i find it very amusing to say and i'm joined by my co-host greg <laughs> glad i ditched that <laughs> i've forgotten i've forgotten about that time when i was your co-host <laughs> Yeah, glad we ditched that, I think. So, uh, no, not been up to a huge amount this week, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I've been watching a bit of TV, actually. Been devouring Your Honour with Brian Cranston, which is fantastic. And although it's not Scottish, yeah. of course, but it, it does include uh, Tony Curran. Oh, that's right. He has yeah, a, sorry, quite a, a big role in it as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's been good. It's very good. And playing a, a Scottish hard man. <laughs> <laughs> As you would expect. At least he's not an alcoholic. <laughs> well, yeah, I was at. Um, I mean, I've oh, I've been down a bit of a train spotting rabbit hole as well. Um, but uh, I went to last night. My daughter was making her not her stage debut because she's done a bit of dancing on stage before when we lived in Scotland. Um, but her Middle East stage debut. She's joined the school and she was. The routine she was doing was to uh, sort of familiar sounding, but I'm not sure what uh, R&B song her and some other kids were doing, like some some body popping and stuff like that. But the opening number for the show, the, the show was only half an hour, which, you know, like I, I know you're not a parent, but any other parents who are listening to the podcast will agree that children's shows shouldn't be any longer than half an hour. Because, you know, you know what I mean, right? Um, half an hour is just the right amount of time. Um, but the, the opening number was some older kids and they were singing. Uh, they weren't dancing, they were, they were singing. And they, so they, they, I think they must have been about 14 or 15. The girl who started singing and she sang like the first verse of the song. Very nice voice, very confident. As soon as her, I guess, opening verse was over, she fainted. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Wow. She went down like a, like a ton of bricks. And all the other kids sort of kept going for a couple of seconds before realising that, and then the music stopped and she was sort of, she was kind of brought off stage. And then, and so the, sh- the, sh- the show had to restart. And the lady who owns a dance school came out and assured us that the wee girl was fine. Uh, apparently said, it's not uncommon for her to faint, apparently. And I'm thinking, well, that can't be a good sign, <laughs> you know? <laughs> She said, apparently she faints quite a lot when they're rehearsing. But yeah, it was a bit like, I've, I've never seen anybody faint, you know. I've, I've seen people like pass out standing up because they've had too much to drink or whatever. But I've never seen anybody just kind of go into a dead faint, you know. So, and I, my daughter was a little bit nervous about going on anyway. But then when she saw an older girl being sort of stretchered off the stage, she was... Uh, 
her nerves were a bit shot. But she went on and she did her show and she was she was, she did really well. To be fair to her, she did really really well. We're very proud of her. But yeah, that was our Saturday, uh, Friday. Sorry, today's Saturday. So shall we have a look at what's been going on in Scotland before we get into the review? Yeah, let's have a look at the news. <laughs> This is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. What have you seen this week in Scotland that has caught your eye? Well, once again, the Falkirk Herald did not <laughs> let me down um, when I was looking for some more sort of unusual off-the-wall news. Um, the headline reads, Denny Offender lost the plot with her guitar-strumming, video-game-playing partner. Uh, Roseanne, who gets called Rosie uh, McCourtney, 30 years old, had just had enough of her partner playing his guitar and playing video games and threw items around the house, which led to him seeking shelter in a bedroom. The matter only came to the attention of the police when he phoned his gran, and she called the police in. Uh, McCourtney appeared at Falkirk Sheriff Court last Thursday, having pleaded guilty to threatening behaviour at her 50 Overton Crescent Denny home. I've never understood why local newspapers feel the need to print like the full address, <laughs> even her door number. You know, they, they stopped just short of putting her postcode in there. Procu- Procurator Fiscal Deputy uh, Heather Galbraith said, the witness was with, was within the address when the accused... Uh, sorry, I'll start again. The witness was, with, was within the address with the accused. It was 7pm and she was in a bad mood acting in an aggressive manner, shouting, Denny, play that guitar, and you're not playing Dirt <laughs> Valley, which uh, thankfully they have said is a, is a video game and not uh, some sort of uh, bedroom activity. The accused then threw some things around within the address, and the witness retreated into a bedroom. He contacted his grandmother, who phoned the police. The accused, the accused was later traced at the address and arrested, the court heard the couple had been together since they were both 16. So Rosie's 30, so they told us that earlier on. So she's, oh, been, wow. she's, been, she's been with this guy for 14 years. Martin Morrow, defence solicitor. I think we've seen Martin Morrow's name before in other stories that have come from the, the kind of Falkirk area. It does ring a it does bell, ring yes. a bell, doesn't it? Uh, well, Martin mm. Morrow said he was playing his guitar and his video games and it just got too much for her that she just got it got too much for her that night. The witness never wanted this to come to court. Sheriff Derek Livingston responded, The moral of the story is don't tell your grandmother if you have an argument with your partner. He placed McCourtney on a six month structured deferred sentence until September the second for her to try and be of good behaviour in that time. And he made it a condition that she attend alcohol counselling. So obviously Rosie's boyfriend is just not paying enough attention to her. He's paying. This has got to be born out of lockdown frustration and boredom and just being confined with one other person for so long. Maybe, but yeah. you think if they've been together for 14 years, be used to it. But I can imagine it would be quite annoying if he's playing Wonderwall all the time. In fact, I have a neighbour, and I don't know which neighbour it is, but every Tuesday and Thursday in the morning, they play the piano. And he only knows one song, and it's Lionel Richie, once, twice, three times a lady. <laughs> and I, I'll be honest, he's getting better. <laughs> as as the last year has progressed, he is getting better. The, the, when we first heard him, it was very, you know, the, the keys were a little bit out of place, and his singing wasn't great. 
Now he is knocking that tune out, but so he sings along. Almost what he says. He's, he just, he's, he's playing. Oh yeah, yeah, he sings right. along. Yeah, oh, yeah, he sings along. Yeah, oh, good for him. Yeah, I mean, initially it was just the chorus. He would say it over and over again, but now he does branch out into all the whole song. But yeah, it's yeah, yeah, good for him. Yeah, but maybe Rosie just got fed up of her boyfriend playing smoke on the water or wonder wall and she's feeling a bit neglected and yeah wants him to play with her dirt road <laughs> her dirt valley <laughs> it's a dirt valley sorry <laughs> yeah exactly there's a model there maybe there's more there's there's more than just the model that the sheriff said <laughs> about not calling Possibly. your granny if you get into a row anyway what uh what's your story uh, well, speaking of grandmothers, this uh, article, which is from the Daily Record this week, involves Boots. And I, boots, I would say Boots the chemist, but it's Boots the, the high street store. Uh, they've had to uh, apologise after an inappropriate advert urged Scots to treat mums to sex toys for Mother's Day. <laughs> so, <laughs> the gist of the story is that this stunned, stunned retired pol- prison officer... Andrew Whitening from Fife was scrolling through his Facebook newsfeed and he had to do a double take at the Boots advert, which featured four colourful vibrators of various shapes and sizes below the slogan, For Every Kind of Mum. The 53-year-old says he found the campaign extremely inappropriate, but he couldn't help but laugh at the racy marketing fail. <laughs> Boots have had to apologise and for any offence caused and said that it was a technical error, which meant that two separate adverts were combined into one. Andrew said, maybe some mothers are in for a shock on Mother's Day. <laughs> I spotted it on Facebook and I did a double take. I couldn't believe what I saw, but then I laughed. It was quite funny. But then I saw the little girl in the picture and I thought, that's a little bit inappropriate, especially when this advert is going out to users on Facebook in the UK. So, Andrew, are you saying there that it would be okay if it was another country? <laughs> so it's okay if it's Cambodia or Vietnam or somewhere, but it, it's inappropriate for the UK. I don't know. Andrew's pretty broad-minded, though, and he does like a laugh, so he found it funny. And he didn't even realise Boots had sold that sort of thing. Maybe they've had to branch out during the lockdown. The full advert read, Are you looking for the perfect gift for your miles away mum? Or your near but far mum? Wherever she is, we've got something she'll love. (laughs) Underneath it, there's an image of a toddler holding hands with her parent and longingly looking through a glass door at her grandmother. And below is a line-up of some very strange-looking sex aids. There was quite a few comments to say that this was disgusting. (laughs) And people have said, "Uh, there could be young kids who are now going to go to their mums and saying, Mummy, what's this? (laughs) Or can you imagine the child going to their dad and saying, Dad, can we get one of these for Mum for Mother's Day? (laughs) I want her her to think about it as every time she uses it. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew said... I know that they all come in all shapes and sizes, but I just looked at the photo again and they look quite weird. I think flowers would be sufficient. This is quite inappropriate. (laughs) Boots have apologised and said we're really sorry for any offence caused. It was a complete mistake with two separate adverts combined. We've put measures in place to uh, ensure this doesn't happen again and apologise for any inconvenience caused. So, for fuck's sake, now it's just started. Hail. (laughs) The window. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, uh, I thought maybe you'd found a, I thought when you turn one of these vibrators on, <laughs> you're going to give us a demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it started hailing outside now against the window. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, so that's Boots uh, with their special Mother's Day gift. It's uh, hey, these mistakes happen, and it's pretty funny. I don't know. I wouldn't get into a, a massive outrage about it or say it's it's wholly inappropriate. Kids shouldn't be looking at Facebook anyway. I'm sure they're not supposed to be on there, so they shouldn't be seeing the advert. But I do love the thought of of one of them seeing it and running up and saying, "Dad, Dad, I know what we can get Mum for Mother's Day." <laughs> <laughs> Can we chuck in a couple of love eggs as well, please? I just, I just saw the perfect gift on Facebook. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm quite surprised to hear that Boots are selling um, like vibrators and things because, like, vibrators were always the. It was always either Ann Summers, you know, like Mum would come home with like a Ann Summers catalogue or something that you could have a look at when there was nobody in. <laughs> Or in like you would see them like in sex shop windows when you went abroad to Europe. I mean, now that I can't, I can't believe that Boots are selling them. Uh, don't get me wrong; they're not selling like double intruder black mambas or anything. It's it's small, discreet kind of ones that you could just easily slip into your purse. <laughs> right. So there you go. <laughs> if you're in the market for that kind of thing, or you're looking for the perfect gift, Boots, they'll sort you out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else have you seen this week, Craig? Well, I get nothing that I get nothing that tops that. This 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 story I found is a bit of an unusual one. Uh, it's about the the late Sir Sean Connery or uh, Big Tam, as we sometimes affectionately refer to him as. It's from the it's from the Daily Record, um, and uh, the headline reads: Sir Sean Connery film scenes wearing only pants if his legs weren't in the shot. Uh, Sir Sean, who died last year at the age of ninety. Only put his breeks on for full-length shorts. Uh, sorry, full-length shorts for full-length shots, and never wore them when he was filming in cars. So there's a picture of Sean when he was a, a much younger man, I think, in his James Bond days, uh, lounging on a sun lounger in a pair of swimming trunks. So the source of this story is none other than actor Wesley Snipes. Uh, he has oh. re- he has revealed how the Bond legend, Sir Sean used to shoot movies wearing just his pants. The 58-year-old movie star, best known for playing Vampire Hunter Blade, as well as starring in White Men Can't Jump, said how he did the same as the Doctor No Icon. Snipes claimed... So, I I, I love the, the terminology by the Scottish reporter. Snipes claims that while working with Sir Sean on the 1993 crime movie Rising Sun... He realised that the actor didn't wear trousers on set. So Sean, who died last year, only put his breeks on for the full-end shots and never wore them filming in cars because nobody could see what he was wearing on his bottom half. The Blade star said, When we were in the car scenes, I was fully costumed. He came in with just a jacket, tie and a shirt. That was it. And boxer shorts and slippers. I'm sitting there thinking, should I say something? Mr Connery doesn't have his pants. And the, the reporters put in brackets, trousers, so in case there's any confusion, Mr. Conway doesn't have his pants on. He added, we filmed the whole scene, and then he leaned over and he says, why are you dressed in all your suit? And I was like, although, see when I was reading that, I was like, I, and my voice went, as like, <laughs> in my mind, as like, because I had to do a scene. And he said, no son, you don't need your pants, brackets, trousers. Why do you need your pants? <laughs> bracket trousers if the camera's up there snipes added i was like wow and a light went off in my head and since then whenever you see me in a car unless i have to get out 
And in my boxer shorts, the Blade Star said he only got into acting because he wanted to hang around dancers and leotards. The actor said, When I was 15, I went to the High School of Performing Arts, the Fame School, in Midtown Broadway in New York City. When I went there and auditioned and saw all the dancers, the female dancers who were auditioning too, takes care to mention that, the female dancers who were auditioning too, I knew this was absolutely the career for me. I've never looked back. It's the dancers and the leotards that really motivated me. So that's quite, quite, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know he's in the, I guess uh, Wesley Snipes is in the Coming to America, uh, the Coming to America sequel. Apparently he's very good in it. I've not um, watched it yet. I might try and... Let me try and talk Mrs. Hurston to watch it this evening. You watched it. Is it any good? Um, Wesley Snipes is probably the best part of the film. I heard that, yeah. Or, or the second best part. It's between Wesley Snipes and all the flashback scenes where they show the first film. Right. <laughs> They're the two best parts of the film. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Right. It's, it's worth a watch. But, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think Wesley used to do that when he was in prison? Used to rock about in just his pants <laughs> it's like, when he was sitting down for lunch saying, I'm not being filmed above the waist whilst he's in the canteen. <laughs> On the security cameras. You know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I forgot. He went, he, went, did, he went to jail for not paying his taxes, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. tax evasion, yeah. I, I, that's a great story. I love the thought of that, of of him sitting there and then Sean Connery coming into the car with just a pair of stained white fronts and his, his baffies and Snipes looking at him what the fuck are you doing? And like, I think Big Sam's like what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Camera's up there maybe maybe it's because um, I know that um, when he became very successful Sean he, he lived uh, like Barbados and hot places in Spain and things like that, right? So maybe it was just maybe like all, all the time that he wasn't making films, like all his downtime and he wasn't shooting a movie, he would just be like, it's probably just like playing golf and being somewhere sort of luxurious, nice warm weather. He probably just got to a stage where he was like, fucking not wearing trousers if I don't have to. Fuck that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, it's a shame we didn't have that story. That 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 story would have gone nicely in our in our uh, Sean Connery tribute episode from November which is still available if you want to check it out nice plug yes so I think you've got a celebrity story for us as well this week haven't you I do yes Um, it is about uh, as he's described comic book tycoon Mark Miller so of course if you're famous uh, if you're familiar with Mark Miller very famous um, comic book creator um, and and wrote a lot of amazing storylines for different comic books he was rummaging around in his cellar and he found a nine-year-old can of iron brew and downed it. (laughs) He was absolutely delighted to discover a batch of original recipe iron brew after revealing he had to stop drinking it when the recipe changed. Uh, The creator of movies Kick-Ass and Kingsman turned his back on Scotland's other national drink following the change made three years ago. So uh, it was a massive outcry at the time, I remember. Iron Brew tweaked the recipe slightly and, and just reduced the sugar content. Mark said he was left heartbroken, having to ditch his three-can-a-day habit. Now, I'm sorry, I like Iron Brew. I've got a can right next to me now, but I, I couldn't drink three cans in a day. That's a little bit too much. No, I don't think I could drink um, three cans in a week. <laughs> no, I, I think I have, like, yeah, I, I think I bought a 24-pack about four months ago, and I've got three cans left. So, um, But Mark found 23 cans in his cellar when he was cleaning it out but 
and he tweeted to his his followers, I've just found these, they're nine years old, do I still drink them? Obviously, Twitter encouraged him, and like, yeah, do it, do it. So he said, right, I'm going to drink it, I'll let you know how it goes. So he replied then, I've just drunk one, it tasted like water with large metal grains, but I persisted, (laughs) and I finished it. After all, it was nine years old. Uh, He'd spoken about his devastation when the recipe changed, saying the new formula murdered iron brew. I used to drink three cans a day for my whole life, and now I never touch it. It happened so gradually, but I haven't bought it in ages. It breaks my heart. The only winners here are dentists and cardiologists. Um, So they changed the formula of iron brew. It was response to sugar tax introduced by the UK government. Mm -hmm. So that was the main reason that they actually reduced it. And apparently, yeah, fans were massively in uproar about this. But Iron Brew have said that they've they've stuck to the same kind of essence recipe. I'll be honest, I didn't really notice a massive difference I didn't, when I tried the new Iron Brew. I'm right there with you. I didn't notice a difference at all. And then when I was home, I went, I went home for Christmas 2019. And I'd seen in the kind of weeks leading up to Christmas that bars had released a, so a special edition glass bottle 1910 recipe. So I asked my sister to to get me a bottle because apparently they were it's like a sort of it, they were a limited edition. They were selling fast, and it was like a sort of classic. I don't know, it was like a, maybe like a liter bottle or maybe a liter and a half, whatever. And uh, you know, so I I had it when I was at home, and I I didn't really notice much of a difference. I mean, maybe if I tried it side by side with like the normal stuff, but uh, it just tasted like it always has to me. So, would you drink a nine-year-old can of Iron Brew? What the fuck, definitely, <laughs> no chance. I mean, to be honest, I'm I'm quite surprised that that he has. Um, I thought he would have been would have known better. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's essentially like all fizzy drinks. I think are essentially just sugar and water and flavouring. So probably, I mean, I don't know if that, if like a nine-year-old, I mean, if a nine-year-old can of fizzy juice is potentially going to do you any harm. Wait, is there any kind of follow-up story? Has he been admitted to hospital or on his stomach? No, nothing like that. No, I think he's uh, he's been okay. He's um, escaped unscathed. Just probably a bit of a metallic-y, shitey taste in his mouth. Well... Any more stories for us? I think you've got one more, haven't you? I've, I've got one more. It's a very small one, um, and it'll probably be old news by the time this comes out. But, um, of course, at the weekend, um, Glasgow Rangers celebrated their first ever title. So congratulations, Rangers. It's, it's lovely to see Scotland's newest club winning a, a trophy <laughs> so quickly. Um uh, <laughs> And, and the fans gathered in George Square and outside Ibrox to, to celebrate. And it was all in the news. There was massive you know, destruction caused. And, and they were celebrating. They were having a party. That's okay. Uh, one guy was really enjoying himself. And because a man has been arrested for performing a sex act on himself outside Ibrox at the weekend, police confirmed a man age 46 had been arrested and charged and is due to appear in court. Now, it doesn't go into detail in this article, but I have seen the video. <laughs> and uh, as people are celebrating around behind him, it's carnage, uh, everyone's enjoying themselves, and the whoever's filming with their mobile phone just pans round, and here's this fat 46-year-old guy with a ranger's top on, his tracky bottoms waistband pulled down below his boss, and he is going hammer and tongs, <laughs> having a wank. <laughs> uh, have you ever been so excited at a sporting event or anything that you've thought uh, maybe when I was like 15 or something you get 
strangely aroused at strange things or but he's 46 <laughs> um what the fuck and <laughs> uh, i think the most exotic thing i've ever banged one out to and again when i was like a teenager was probably the lunchtime episode of neighbors <laughs> even the- mrs mangle but yeah, no, I mean there was there was a I guess there was a bit of a skill to it, which but a carefully a carefully developed skill. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sure he's been honing this skill for a long time. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, as I say, this photo and video have gone viral, so everyone's now seen his face. So he's gonna be known as probably gonna be proud of it, to be honest, isn't he? <laughs> Would, would you? I don't know. If you're going to do something like that, you've got to have very little shame. Or <laughs> be mentally ill, perhaps, or something, I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions on that. I mean, he, he maybe was very drunk, but then again, if you're very drunk as a 46-year-old man and slightly overweight, I'd say morbidly obese, would you be able to get up? And it's it's going to be cold at night in Glasgow Early in March. March yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> okay, well. I just love the thought of I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I could burst. I could. Oh, oh I've got to rip the heat off it. <laughs> anyway, so be safe, kids. Uh, so, yeah, that concludes my news stories for the week. Um, what about yourself? Anything else? No, no I don't have any. <laughs> don't no. Have any more stories. Hey, I, I think w- we've done okay this week. We've had a, a guitar playing Dirt Valley fiend, <laughs> um, we've had Boots Vibrators. Uh, Sean Connery, Mark Miller, and uh, Ibrox Wanker. I, I think we've we've kept it quite good this week in terms of the news stories. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been good. We have. I'm looking. Yeah. I'm looking forward to writing the description for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I look forward to doing the social media. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, well, shall we delve into a review? And it was your choice this week, Greg, and I cannot wait. Okay, well. We, I, we kind of gave the game away earlier on, but this week uh, we're going to be talking about Danny Boyle's 1996 movie, Train Spotting, based on the book by Irving Welsh. And I think for all of us, there's a movie or a book or something that just comes along at the right time in our lives. It captures our imagination. And uh, and for me, you know, when, when this came out, I was 17 years old. I was in my last year at school. I had recently read the book, like a, maybe a few months before the movie came out. I saw it at the cinema, and yeah, and I've I've never stopped. I've never stopped going back to it. So the the movie is uh, it is about Mark Renton, played by Hugh McGregor, and his uh, friends. All of not well, most of which uh, are heroin addicts, and in a series of sort of vignettes. Uh, Tells the how they try to give up heroin, how they get back on heroin, how they their interaction between each other, their interaction with other people, the friendships, relationships with other people, and really sort of shows the lifestyle um, that uh, that heroin users would have had, which would have been a surprise, I think, to most people who have never lived in that world. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, I mean, and even now, the, re- the reason I chose the, the film is because it's. It's its 25th anniversary this year. I'm sure there'll be a lot of stuff on the... I know Empire's done a, a feature already. 
Empire Magazine, and I thought it's just the right time to talk about it. So, what, I mean, I know obviously what what one of the things that you and I have in common is uh, our love of Irvin Welsh's books and particularly this movie. So, what's your first? Uh, what's your first kind of memories? How did you? How, how did you encounter Train Spotting? How did you come across it? Uh, I was too young to go and see it at the cinema because I was fifteen when it came out. In fact, I would have been 14 when it first came out. I believe it came out 23rd of February. Yeah. Or around about then, yeah. Uh, yeah. So my birthday is 27, so I would have been 14 turning 15. So obviously there was no chance I was going to be getting into the cinema to see this. So I had to wait for it to come out on VHS. I actually got it for Christmas that year. So uh, do you remember at that time, it seemed to happen quite a lot, you would get VHS box sets. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a Reservoir Dogs one that came with a couple of pin badges and a Zippo lighter and Joe Cabot's little black book. And I think I had a, an Alien 3 one that came with a watch. So I, I got the train spotting one for Christmas and it came with, I think, um, a pair of John Lennon style orange tinted sunglasses and uh, a lighter. It wasn't like a Zippo lighter, but it, it was the same kind of style-ish without the lid. Um, and it was orange with train spotting on the front and uh, a chrome king size Rizla holder with train spotting embossed on the front. All useful items, you know, <laughs> at, at that age that so you can do with. What every 15 year old boy wants for Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, I got that. And so I remember it, it would have been Christmas evening that year that I watched it for the first time. And I remember vividly sitting in my room and watching it at night that time and just being absolutely blown away by it. Obviously, I had been exposed to it in the, in the build-up because yeah. it was everywhere at the time. And I'll come back to that later, but you know, I know it was kind of marketed as the British pulp fiction in terms of you couldn't go into HMV without seeing the posters, mm. postcards, the book, the soundtrack, latterly, you know, the VHS. It was everywhere. You couldn't escape it. And of course, this was 96, so it was at the height of Britpop and Cool Britannia and Euro 96. So it, it was a swelling of, you know, this British film is massive. So there was no escaping. But yeah, I, I watched it that evening and just fell in love. And I think I watched it twice on Boxing Day and then again, like on the 27th. And it was a heavy rotation film for me. Just absolutely adored it. I've seen it countless times. And even now watching it this week, I spotted two things that I've never spotted before. Oh, really? What was that? And it just, yeah. I'll, I'll come back to them okay. later. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, it's not things that I hadn't spotted, but it was things that I had maybe misinterpreted right. or that I'd always thought that. But yeah, but even now, it still is making me notice things and I'm still smirking and anticipating certain points coming up that just fill me with joy. You know, even in terms of the to skip forward towards later, when Renton's in his flat in London le- reading the letter from Diane, and he just is the... Also, Francis Begbie has been in the news a lot, wanted for uh, a robbery, a jeweller in Torfins or whatever, and the doorbell goes, and he just flips the letter and reads Francis Begbie. And, oh, <laughs> just... It's, it's the anticipation of just seeing Begbie there again. <laughs> I just adore this film. So yeah, that's um, that was my first kind of exposure to it. But I believe you'd, you'd read the book before you'd seen the film, had you? Yeah, so there was... I'd, I'd heard... I'd first sort of heard about Trainspotting. Um, and we mentioned that when we did The Shallow Grave, 
uh, episode, like before Shadow Grave on the on the rental copy of the VHS, there was a teaser that they shot for Train Spotting. Now, if I'm right, they shot this teaser before they shot the film, and it's Hugh McGregor tied to the tied to a railway line, and he's you know talking about. I think he does a bit of the choose life thing and all that sort of stuff before the train goes over him. So I, it was in my mind, and then there was a kid at school uh, called Martin Scott who had he had train spotting and he had um, the acid house. And Martin and I were kind of friendly because we weren't the same kind of music, sort of band music and stuff, blah blah blah. And uh, he gave me train spotting. And that day, so he I think he, he he gave me it in the morning at break time. That day. We got sent home early from school. So I was in sixth year at school. We got sent home early because the there was a forecast of um, big snowstorm. So they, they, they came around and I lived, I had to get the bus home back and forth to school. So they came around and said, look, the buses have been called. Uh, we're expecting a big snowstorm, so you got to go home. Um, so I, I went home, nobody in. Like My sisters were at school. Their, they, they, their school was right across the wall from our house, so they didn't get sent home when it snowed. Uh, my mum and my stepdad were at work. So I just like sat down and started reading this book, and I pretty much read it from cover to cover. Not like all, or not all, not on all at once, but like over the course of that day. So by by the time I went to bed that night, I had read the whole book, and I was just like captivated, um, totally captivated by it. And I I, I took it back in for Martin when um. When we're back, I don't think I think school was back on. I don't think the snowstorm came anything. That we're back at school the next day, and I, I gave it to him, and he gave me a loan of the acid house. And I, I I read that pretty quickly as well. Not quite, I didn't quite I didn't I didn't devour it in the same way as I devoured uh, train spotting. But uh, yeah, I was just fucking. I just couldn't believe it because it wasn't. I I didn't like uh, identify with any of the scenarios that the characters were in, but the characters they are kind of recognisable. In a way, you know what I mean? They, you know, like maybe not so much renting, but you know, like someone who's like a good-looking guy who seems to be able to get any kind of girl he wants. We all know guys like that. Well, we all did when we were younger, which would be like sick boy guys that are fucking psycho. But I was a bit. You were a bit older when you met me. <laughs> guys, guys that were like fucking psychopaths that were always looking for trouble and trying to start fights. When you kids like that. Guys like Spud, who are just sort of harmless, but not very bright and getting into baller, all that sort of stuff. It was just like really, really guys like Tommy, who are a bit cooler and sporty and everything. And uh, it just, you just sort of recognised all these characters. And then because it was in, it's set in a in Scotland and it's set in Edinburgh, places that I knew of. Yeah, I certainly knew Edinburgh City Centre to some extent when I was that age a little a bit. Um, I didn't obviously didn't know Leith and all these other areas, but I just I just couldn't I could not put it down. So like when the movie was was coming out, I couldn't wait to see it. Martin had passed the book around our kind of group of mates. Uh so we I think the the Saturday, I think the film was released on the Friday. We had got to, we had tickets for the Saturday night and we drove in Aberdeen, watched it at the Odeon in Aberdeen. Just fucking and it was I was like you know, when you see a movie and you're like, I fucking can't wait to see that again. But in those days, you had to wait a while because it, it didn't come out in video until after the summer of that year. I remember going and buying, spending £20 on a VHS copy of the video just because I had to have it. Remember they used to come in like a slightly bigger box, the VHS ones? So I just yeah, had, X-Rental. Yeah, I just, yeah, sorry, X-Rental, that's what I meant to say. I just sort of had to have it, you know? You know, the, the both soundtracks and everything. They, it, they, like you say, just... I don't think. I mean, the the, the film and the the book and the film are sort of set 
in the eighties in Edinburgh, the kind of I think sort of mid to late eighties. But and 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 the film, the the intention of the film is that it is set around the same time as the book, but. It just couldn't have landed at a better time, like you were saying before, for kind of pop culture in the UK at that time. You know what I mean? It just, it, it was just, it was just, just, it was, it was kind of part of it. Like, like, I guess a movie like Easy Rider sort of sits alongside the music that was popular at the time that came out, like Steppenwolf and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and stuff. I think Trainspotting just does the same thing, but for the mid nineties. Just sits alongside everything that we're listening to, everything that we're watching on TV, and everything. It's just, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that there'll ever be anything like it again because I don't think that we'll ever get a kind of musical and cultural movement that's everywhere like like Britpop was when we were in our teens. You know? No, I completely agree. It just, it, it's incredible just how much it completely encapsulated that era. And watching it again, you are just instantly transported back. I've been singing Lust for Life the entire week at, because I'd watched it. I mean, it could be because I watched Trainspotting 2 again yesterday as well. <laughs> but, you know, I've been singing Lust for Life. I've been singing Atomic by Blondie the entire week as well because it's it's stuck in my head again. And I'm just transported back to that time. It was just, as you say, it was an incredible movement. And that says a lot for Irvin Welsh, who obviously wrote the book, that he had quite a lot of people coming to him mm. wanting to turn this into a film. But they all wanted to make it into like a, a Ken Loach kind of art house type of film. It, you know, it could have ended up a lot like Sweet 16, which we yeah. reviewed last time on The Swally. It, it kind of has that almost feeling you could have made it like that. But Danny Boyle was just so desperate and he promised Irvin Welsh that I want to make this a mainstream film. Yeah. And that was what convinced Welsh to say, okay, yeah, it's yours. And Jesus, he did a hell of a job. Yeah, totally. Because the thing is, when you, when you read the book, they... There's a, there's an energy to the book. Okay? The the book if for for anybody who's not written the book, it's the, the the book is a series of sort of stories about these characters and 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 characters that that um, don't make it into the movie, but that you know there's some stories that then some stories that obviously just can't be kind of put on screen because they're too close to the bone. But but it it goes at a pace. So even even they. None of the stories are particularly long. They're not drawn out. They're not like kind of novella length. They're just sort of chapters with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And and the the sort of that I think that gives the book a real pace, which I think Danny Boyle's done a great job of putting on the screen. You know, because it's only ninety minutes long, the movie, but there's so much and <laughs> so much happens in the ninety minutes. It's incredible that it's so short. I I genuinely had forgotten. It, like when I started watching it, I was like ninety minutes. Is that it? And I had to double check. Like, have I some dodgy version? But no, it's I, I couldn't remember. It's so compact, and as you say, it's so high energy and so fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's done an, an incredible job because I I, I listened to a, a podcast the other day with a couple of guys reviewing it as well, just in terms of doing some more research, and they had mentioned. They both loved the film and they said one of them had read the book and enjoyed it. And the other one said he couldn't get into the book. He right. just, he, he couldn't get into it because it, it was like reading A Clockwork Orange, like it's all in NADSAT. But it, mm -hmm. I guess to us, I, I can maybe see that because I've read the book quite a few times, but yeah. you just get into the flow of it so easily in terms yeah. of the language. And, uh, yeah, and I, th I think it's the... 
it's the it's it's the power of the narrative like mm. that just that just helps you surrender to that to the way that he writes it in the the kind of Edinburgh vernacular the slang and, and stuff and you you by the time you get to the end of the book you're an expert on it because you know we don't all speak the same way in every part of Scotland obviously you know Aberdeen Aberdeen has a, its own very distinctive kind of vernacular and and words and ways of speaking you go a bit further northeast out of Aberdeen and it goes a bit Doric and a bit more so you know Glasgow obviously has its own its own way and everything just like just like England so you know for me like for somebody who grew up reading like the Bruins and Noor Willie <laughs> helps a wee bit um, in terms of uh, just kind of getting comfortable with um, with the way that Irvin Welsh writes uh, the, the dialogue in his books I, I gave it to my dad to read I remember distinctly because like in those days, my dad was working. He worked night shift every second weekend, and my dad still devours. He reads a lot of books. My dad um, and I said to him, "Oh, here, you know, it should be transport, and it's really good. It's really funny." I said, "There's some really funny bits in it. I think you'll like it." And uh, he came back the next day, and he was like, oh, "Fucking that Edinburgh slang just does my nut," and I couldn't get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, no. I, when I was looking, I was doing my research and and kind of reading about how it's sort of journey from page to screen that you touched on it already like Irvin Welsh he didn't want it to be as you say this sort of I think he he compares it to he didn't want to be something like the Basketball Diaries with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio or there's there's a German movie I've never seen it called uh, Christine F he didn't want to be anything like that but apparently um, Andrew McDonald who would go on to produce the movie gave he, he had read the book and apparently he he doesn't read a lot of books, apparently. <laughs> Andrew McDonald, which unusually, but he said that he read it on a plane and really liked it, and he gave it to Danny Boyle and said, which should maybe be our next project. And Danny Boyle read the book, and he enjoyed it as well. And so John Hodge uh, had been their their uh, script writer on Shadow Graves, so they got him involved. And apparently Danny Boyle told um, Irvin Welsh that uh, Andrew McDonald and John Hodge were the, most, the, the two most important Scotsmen since Kenny Dalgleish and Alex Ferguson. I don't, I don't know if you want to say that to like a Hibs fan. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I, I, I guess he was a pragmatic um, Hibs fan. The, 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 the book had already been made into a play where, funnily enough, Ewan Bremner, who plays Spud uh, in the play, played the character of Renton. But yeah, they, they you say, like Boyle convinced them, you know, because he, I guess he showed them how he wanted to interpret the book and what he wanted to put in the screen. You know, and I, I think... I don't think Gavin Welsh. I think the only other one of his books that I think has been six, like really successfully made into a movie is Filth. The the other the, I mean, there's only been the Acid House and Ecstasy, and they're they're both not great. I mean, Ecstasy is particularly poor. Um, yeah, the, the movie is particularly poor. The Acid House isn't. It's like it's better than Ecstasy, but it's not brilliant. I don't think. Yeah, I would be in full agreement with you there. I was quite worried about Filth because I I do adore that book as well. Yeah, but when I knew James McAvoy was on board, I kind of thought this this could be okay. And and it is. I feels great. Actually, I need to watch that again. Uh, but yeah, it's a. Uh, you're right. There's not a lot of yeah his, his books that have made it successfully onto the screen. But yeah, I mean, I just like you say, it was just like it was just like fucking for about two years. It, it seemed to just be everywhere. Uh, 
everywhere I went, Trainspotting, the, the kind of posters, people had, they have the, because when I went to college, left home and everything, everybody, everybody seemed to have the, the now famous poster um, of um, Ewan, uh, Ewan McGregor and uh, Johnny Lee Miller, Ewan Bremner, uh, Bobby Carlyle and Kelly McDonald and their characters, you know, uh, that poster seems to be all over the place. Yeah, I think it was, it was that poster and the one of, Begby holding a knife to Renton's boss. Yeah, I had the postcard. That seemed of that. to be. <laughs> <laughs> I used to buy. Popular. Um, I used to buy uh, postcards of um, film posters. You used to be able to buy them in like big shops. I think shops like Virgin and stuff sold them. I used to have. I've, I used to I used to collect them. I, I don't know whatever happened to them. I used to have quite a lot of them. Um, but I had that one. Um, of uh, <laughs> yeah, it said. I think it said at the bottom, "I'm no a fucking buffy, right?" <laughs> it did. Yeah. Yes. So to to talk about. The, the cast obviously Ewan McGregor had worked with Danny Boyle in Shallow Grave and apparently he was the only choice to play Renton yeah in terms of the instantly Boyle knew that he wanted McGregor as Renton yeah I read that too and um, but they wanted um, they wanted Ewan Bremner to be in the movie because they had seen the play and they obviously thought mm. it was very good and so he was cast as Spuds but the, the, the thing about the casting is because I had read the book bef- before I saw the movie and, and maybe this is just my, my mind kind of playing, a, playing a, bit, a bit of a trick on me but Ewan Bremner just seems to be perfect in terms of how he looks for the mental image that I had created of Spud in my head yeah. before I saw the film, you know. Now, as I say, that could just be like my hindsight kind of playing playing uh, tricks on me. But like, you, you, when I envisioned Renton when I was reading the book, didn't look like you McGregor, and Begbie didn't look like Bobby Carlyle in my mind when I first read the book. Like Begbie was in my head was like a sort of big guy with a shaved head, you know. Yeah. And uh, Renton actually, there's a guy that's a couple of years older than me at school called Lee Thompson who had long ginger hair tied in a ponytail. So whenever when I was reading, I kind of thought I had Lee in my mind when I read the book for the first time. And when I when I've read the subsequent books, I do I tend to see the actors and the characters. Mm. But for some reason, I still sort of see Lee <laughs> when I'm reading about Renton. I don't see Ewan McGregor. It's the same as uh, Johnny Lee Miller, Sick Boy. I mm. think in the book, Sick Boy's got dark hair, and yeah. even in porno he's described as having a, a ponytail like steven seagal yeah that's right so it was i did read for train spotting 2 uh johnny miller offered to shave his head bald to make himself look older for uh-huh. the part and danny boyle said no 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 you have to have the bleach blonde hair <laughs> um, so but yeah they all do look different from their described in the book i would say as you say apart from spud yeah spud is kind of nailed on uh-huh. but I don't know if it's because we've grown up with this film for the last 25 years and because it is, but another podcast we listen to, the rewatchables, they do the, the casting what ifs or if you were going to recast anyone. I wouldn't recast a single character No, from that. Everyone is absolutely perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... I think especially, and I saw it when I was watching the film again this time, and I think it's been a wee while since I watched it, but Bobby Carlyle's not, he's not like a, as Begbie, he's not a, a massive presence in the first maybe 30, 40 minutes of the movie. It's not until the scene that you mentioned earlier on when Renton's reading the letter from Diane, then he's very much in it. But apart from the scene of him, throwing the pint glass over his shoulder and the kind of flashback to the, the the game of pool and the volley when he beats the guy up with the pool cue. You don't see too much of him 
until you know uh, Renton goes to London and everything. But he um and 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 watching Train Spotting too. I mean, he he really leans into the character. Bobby Carlyle, and you kind of get the impression that he, because he's a bit older, I think, than the rest of the cast, you get the impression that he has known a hundred Frank Begbies in his life. He kind of grew up in Glasgow in the late 60s and 70s when, you know, kind of working man city, quite a tough place to grow up, I would imagine, um, back in those days. He's, he's fucking. I mean, he's brilliant because he's funny, and you and you, you can laugh at him. But he's also like that scene that we were talking about uh, on the postcards or the poster when he turns on Renton for making fun of him. I mean, it's fucking. He's chilling in that scene, you know, absolutely. And then later on, and I, I still find that scene quite hard to watch when he he smashes the pint glass into the guy's face in the pub in London. You just realise because there was if there was if there was ever any doubt in your mind by that point in the film, although it's right at the kind of fag end of the movie so any, any doubt in your mind that this guy's a fucking psycho it's completely washed away <laughs> by that scene you know to go back to the the scene of the knife against the wall with the boss Renton knows Begbie so well. You yeah. know, he's known him since the first first day at school and they've been friends since. And he knows he's a fucking psycho. He mentions it a few times and he could turn on a knife edge. But you think Begbie's obviously come back and told Mark yeah. about the what's happened in the car. And you can almost, it, it does look, because the, they're kind of halfway through the conversation when the scene starts. And it is almost like Renton is so relaxed and kind of like, I can have a laugh with this. It's fine. Yeah. It's Franco. Everything's going to be okay. And that's when he says, you know, it could have been something beautiful or yeah, something yeah. along those lines. And yeah, Begbie just fucking snaps like that. Yeah. And you think for Mark to have known him all these years and to be think, oh, this'll be okay. It'll be okay if I can say this. Yeah, that that's true. That's the the mark of a an absolute head case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to worry about. Look, I'm not a fucking buffy and that's the end yet. Let's face it, it could have been wonderful. Fucking listen to me, you piece of junky shit. A joke's a fucking joke. You mention that again, I'll cut you up. You understand? He's so good in that, Bobby Carlyle, because one, there's a sort of, I don't know if this is like part of the soundtrack or if it's or if it's him making the noise, but after Renton says that to him, there's like a sort of like a deep breath or something as he's getting up, that kind of... And he, he flicks a lit cigarette at Ewan McGregor, yeah. and it hit, luckily it, it hits the wall, but it could have hit him in the, in the face or something. You know? and, and I wonder, I mean, I've not seen anything about it in the... I, I know that like, the movie, a lot of the scenes are like the first take, because they shot it over seven weeks, which is not a long time. They only had mm. a million and a half pounds, so they had to really go for it. But I think... It, I think that Danny Bell, uh, Danny Bell wanted to get some of these in the first take just to keep that energy of the film up. But I, I don't think you McGregor was expecting to have a lit cigarette flicked at his head. <laughs> if not, he's got a hell of a good reaction, yeah, <laughs> in terms of the acting ability. Yeah. Uh, no, I did read, I think the majority of the film was filmed in one take because yeah. they were so limited and restricted. Yeah, And um, if you think about some of the set pieces that they have would take a couple of days filming at least. So yeah, scenes like that with, with Begbie and Brenton would have been filmed very quickly. Yeah. So either you're right, either Bobby Carlyle has just flicked a lit cigarette at him <laughs> with him not expecting it, or Ewan McGregor has got incredible reaction <laughs> acting ability. For yeah, that. yeah. And, it's, and, it, and it's difficult to 
flick a cigarette with a degree of accuracy as well, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> but yeah, because the thing is, like, the only thing that I had ever seen Bobby Carlyle in before Train Spotting was Hamish Macbeth, which for people who might not know about Hamish Macbeth, it was a quite a gentle sort of Scottish drama, maybe comedy drama, more along the... but fairly gentle, fairly benign. You say it was like the Scottish version of Heartbeat. That's a great way to describe it. And you, McGregor, played Hamish Macbeth... No, sorry, Bobby Carlyle played Hamish Macbeth, the island Bobby uh, police officer. So, and I, I'd seen, like, bits and bobs of Hamish Macbeth. I hadn't seen a lot of it. I didn't realise that Robert Carlyle had been active for quite a long time and had done, like, some pretty serious drama before. So, I mean, th- there isn't a character further away from Hamish Macbeth than Francis Begbie. <laughs> But he wasn't the first choice for the role, was he? It was Christopher Eccleston that Danny Boyle originally had in mind for Begbie. Yeah. And all I can say is, thank God (laughs) Christopher Eccleston turned it down because I can't imagine, I can't imagine him playing Begbie. No, me neither. Me neither. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think, because I think think the thing about, the thing that makes him quite quite effective is that Bobby Carlyle is not very tall. I've Mm. I've, I've, mm-hmm. I, and I've, I've seen him from a distance when I lived in Glasgow um, in the city centre he's not a very big guy and uh, and even against the other actors like again going back to that scene when he kind of pushes Hugh McGregor up against the wall Hugh McGregor's like a lot taller than him I know he's up on his tiptoes mm. and everything and again you know you know these guys who aren't very big yep. and are fucking mm-hmm. nutters and they kind of want to yep. prove the fact that they're like just because they're wee they're still hard cunts and they'll fucking take on any cunt and all that kind of thing you know and that's what makes I think so realistic and makes Begbie so terrifying. Yeah. He is just, yeah, I've met guys just like Begbie. I I, I don't want to spend too much time on Bobby Carlyle because there's so many good performances in the film, but just, I will just say this, like that scene that I mentioned, the the one that I still find, is still kind of a bit hard to watch when he glasses the guy in the pub. Those three guys that he kind of bumps into and he's out from the bar are all a good bit taller than him, including the guy that gets the glass smashed into his face. But, I mean, and these, the, the, the guy, the actors that play these guys, these three guys are, you know, I mean, they might not even be actors, they might just be extras or whatever, but it really was something quite affecting about it when I watched this the other day. So when he's, um, when, when, when Begbie's like asking if anybody else wants to get in his way, he's like, you, you, and the camera uh, rests on these two guys for a few seconds and they're there and they're kind of tucked in polo shirts, still holding their pints, they've got beer down the front of their shirts, one of them's kind of looking at the ground, the other one's kind of looking at Begbie in kind of sort of fear, you know, like he can't look away from him. And, um, and, and you know, again, it's just, it's the fucking power of Bobby Carlyle in that role. So good, so good. We sort of, uh, I, I think it's sort of my fault, we, we sort of slipped past him a bit there, um, but Ewan McGregor as... Um, as Renton, uh, they you that you said before they, they, they was he was the first the, the first and only choice for Danny Boyle and Andrew McDonald because they enjoyed working with him on Shadow Grave and liked his work. Apparently, um, Boyle said that they wanted somebody who had the kind of quality of Michael Caine's character in the movie Alfie and also Malcolm McDowell's character. In a clockwork orange, uh, repulsive with charm that makes you feel deeply ambiguous about what he's doing. And I think that they definitely, they definitely get that with you, McGregor. The only thing is, his, you know, in the book, Renton is, he's a bit, he's no, he even, he's kind of, he's unhygienic, he's got bad skin, he's, you know, he's socially awkward and stuff like that. And I, I think there's even a bit in the book where he, he mentions that he's never been a particularly hygienic, the one for washing and all that kind of thing. 
I don't, but so you know, but I think I think the reason you McGregor wins through is because he's just deeply, deeply charismatic as Mark Renton. You know, I think it would be difficult to to pull off the, the Renton character exactly as he is in the book, as yeah. you've described just now, because yeah. you have to remember he is the leading man in this big film, yeah. and and the film very much is Renton's story. What I think about that is that Renton is very much the he's the character I think you can relate to the most, and he is kind of not the every man but what I'm trying to say is out of the main kind of core core four you would say let's just slightly exclude Tommy from this but the core four Spud, Sickboy and Begbie's characters are all kind of heightened mm. in terms of the, you know they're kind of over the top the way they are whereas Mark is a bit more grounded and a bit more relatable in a way and you can kind of see parts of yourself in Renton to a certain degree, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, he, you know, as as the narrator, you you know, he allows you to see these other characters through his his lens. You know, like all 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 the exposition is on him. Uh, as you know, as the one that's taken us through the film. Um, the only difference is he's up. He's still is a kind of pivotal part of it. You know, he he's the one that we see, that we see. You know, like kick heroin and then go through cold turkey and. You know, like that the scene when he's hallucinating in bed and everything. And then and then become you know, sort of like swap his drug addiction and the lifestyle that goes with it for what he for what he's he determines as a similar sort of lifestyle in London as a estate agent. <laughs> you know? Mm. Um yeah. sort of hustling, right? You know, it's um I guess there's a there's a there's there's the there's there's a hustle to his lifestyle as a drug addict and there's a hustle to his lifestyle as an estate agent in in London, but I mean the thing is that what what, makes, what surprises me about the character of Renton and for you McGregor is arguably this is the movie that has made you McGregor an international superstar and he's easily yeah. the there's nobody else in the cast apart from well I guess Danny Boyle's director but there's certainly nobody else in the cast who has gone on to be so successful and really an A list movie star you know no no definitely not. You could maybe say that his star has slightly faded now. Um, obviously, he's still very successful. He's still doing. He was in the one of the series of Fargo. Yeah, he's he's got an Obi Wan TV show coming out, I think, mm-hmm. and he's still very successful. But yeah, he it did catapult him into a list, and yeah, he wouldn't have been Obi Wan Kenobi. I mean, what three years after this, he's he's playing Obi Wan Kenobi. Ninety nine uh, was yeah, it the yeah. Phantom Menace. Yeah, that's that, that's a stellar rise into that. I mean, what's his next? I don't know his next film after this. I know he did like Brassed Off and stuff, but yeah, Lifeless Order. The next, did he do that before Star Wars? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, he did. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Cameron Diaz, and you're like, holy shit! In my last film, I was climbing down a toilet <laughs> to get some opium suppositories, and now I'm starring <laughs> across Cameron Diaz. Yeah, but even but I mean, if, you, if you're George Lucas. And you're casting like essentially the young Alec Guinness, right? That's what you. That's the part you're looking for. You're looking for somebody who can who can convey the character Obi Wan Kenobi. But I mean, Alec Guinness is just playing. I don't think he's acting an awful lot in Star Wars. Alec <laughs> Guinness. No, it's just he probably spoke to all the actors exactly the same way as he speaks to Luke Skywalker. You know, kind of friendly, convivial advice. And they, so we need somebody that can play this part. So Ewan McGregor's real at the time is going to be shallow grave 
train spotting. He might have um, he might have been cast as Obi Wan before a life less ordinary because there's, I think a life less ordinary is only like a year or two after train spotting. So what do you show George Lucas? <laughs> here I am climbing out of a toilet. Uh, here I am uh, pretending to inject heroin. You know, here I am in a scene with a dead baby climbing across my bedroom ceiling. <laughs> it's just the right person we want for this Alec Guinness role. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I watch Hugh McGregor and anything. I think, you know, he's he's sort of like... I don't. I, mean, I think, you know, for my dad growing up, when he was a little boy, the actors would have been sort of John Wayne, I guess, because when he was a little boy, but then older, being like kind of Clint Eastwood, that sort of actor, you know, um, just because he would he, he would just have been in things that would have had an impact on my dad at an impressionable age. Yeah, I think I, I watch Hugh McGregor and anything because of train spotting. Very good. I watch him in anything. I, th- I think he's uh, I think he's great. And then next I get we've got a Swally favourite Johnny Lee Miller he's been on we did, we did, we did Complicity I saw a, a quick excerpt from the Graham Norton show when he had Hugh McGregor Johnny Lee Miller Ewan Bremner Danny Boyle and Bobby Carlyle on for Trainspotting 2 and Ewan Bremner tells a story of after the rap party for Trainspotting so they had finished shooting they were they were flying to London he thinks they were flying to London in the morning to shoot that poster that we're talking about earlier on mm. and mm-hmm. he said that he shared a taxi with with um, John Lee Miller and he started talking in his own of course English accent <laughs> I guess he had just kept his Scottish accent all the way through the shoot because as I've said before it's a phenomenal Scottish accent John Lee Miller and it's not an easy accent to do for every you know for, for every John Lee Miller doing a Scottish accent there's a there's a, a Liam Neeson's Scottish accent there's a there's a there's a Christophe Lambert Scottish accent you know it's not an easy accent to do I like I, I should have said this before I'm sure I said when we did the complicity episode I did, it, it was quite a long time maybe years before I knew I knew that John Lee Miller wasn't Scottish because even his name sounds a wee bit Scottish <laughs> you know to go back to the last episode when we reviewed Sweet 16 available wherever you get your podcast and we mentioned about Martin Compton on Line of Duty and his English accent Mm -hmm. and we said it kind of puts you off because you're so used to hearing him with a Scottish accent yeah I feel that way when I hear Johnny Lee Miller talk in his normal accent I'm like that's not right I I expect him to sound like sick boy because his accent is phenomenal it's so good I would never have realized that he wasn't Scottish he's so good at it and his Sean Connery impression is second to none it's really good. I mean, and his whole his whole little kind of monologue that he does near the beginning of the film when he's talking about Doctor No and Goldfinger, how Goldfinger's better than Doctor No. You know, I mean, it's, when you when when you read the book, Sick Boy's obsession. You know, he, there's a, there's a chapter where uh, he's sort of talking to Sean Connery in his head, uh, Sick Boy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I, he. Like he might not have looked exactly how he is written, but he certainly the, he certainly conveys the character exactly how it's written in the first book. Anyway, I mean, Sick Boy becomes a much more developed character in later books, like um, Porno and Dead Men's Trousers, especially. But um, but yeah, he's just he's he's great at it, and of course he's good looking as well. He's a good looking guy, oh, John yeah, Lee Miller. Yeah. So. You know, that that ease with the women and all that is very believable, you know? Oh, yeah. Completely believe it. That, <laughs> yeah, Simon has this way with women, without a doubt. <laughs> you know, we spoke about Ewan McGregor. I guess like, the other person we need to talk about is Kevin McKidd 
is Tommy, is the, the, the ill-fated Tommy. This Because I they were said when we, we did Small Faces, I thought that um, Train Spotting was his movie debut, but it was, like, Small Faces was his movie debut. Mm. But, uh, and they, they, Danny Boyle had seen him in Rushes when he had come up to visit the set of Small Faces, and that's what led him to casting him as Tommy. And he's, he's great. I mean, he's, he's not got... A huge amount of screen time compared to the other actors, but when he's on, when he's when he's the scenes that he's in, he's really good in. Really good, really good actor. Very believable and absolutely breaks your heart because in the the first half hour, forty minutes of the film, he is such a nice guy and a lovely character. And at the end of the day, it's Renton that fucks him over. Yeah. By swapping the videos yeah. which leads to his downfall and then yeah of course but it's such a, a shame and, and that's like I suppose the, the human element of the film in that you you really like this character he's done nothing wrong hasn't harmed anyone he's obviously a very truthful soul because as Renton says when Begbie's telling the story about the, the pool game and gives his version and then I think Renton says I got the truth from Tommy yeah. does he does he say you always get the truth he from does, Tommy yeah. or something yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's obviously a, a very good-hearted, kind, nice guy, and it's just a shame that he is the ultimate kind of downfall in the film. Yeah, one of my favourite, <laughs> my favourite scenes in the film, kind of, kind of perversely, is uh, Tommy's funeral when um, Billy Renton, who is a much bigger presence and part in the book, is like a footnote in the film, right? But he isn't Billy Renton in the film. It's Gavin, Gavin Temperley. Oh. Oh really? Yeah. Now I. Well, let's talk about it now. But yes, um, we. Um, he is. He's credited as Gavin Temperley. Right. And he's obviously only in a couple of scenes because he's there at the end of the the court case. Yeah. When Renton gets off, so that's when I thought, okay, so that is his brother then. Yeah. And then of course they're at Tommy's funeral. And like, okay, but in Train Spotting Two, when Sick Boy and Begbie are in the cellar and. Begbie say, uh, sick boy says, do you remember Gavin Temperley? Yeah. And Begbie says, oh yeah, I remember him. Ah, well, he saw Rent in, in Amsterdam. Yeah. So it is a, a different character. It's not Billy Renton. Oh, So gosh. effectively, in the film, I think Renton is an only child. Right, okay. Because like in the book, his brother Billy is a massive mm. character in the book. But he's yeah. even got, I think he's even got a chapter or two of his own with his mates, right? When they, when yeah, they have yeah the, he does. The kind of Christmas club money or whatever it is. That's um, right, the, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that conversation between, I get, well, Gavin and uh, Renton when he's, Gavin's telling... Tommy uh, telling Renton how Tommy died. I mean, and it's it's fucking. I mean, it's tragic. There's no getting around that it's tragic. And you know, like Begbie's in front of them, kind of hissing at them when they're talking during the when the when the minister's giving the eulogy. And uh, and the, you know, maybe you'll. I won't describe it because maybe you'll cut it in. But just the very last line of it about the kitten. I mean, it's laugh out loud funny. What the <laughs> Kitten was fine though. That, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it is the acting in that scene as well. As you say, it, it's so funny with the what he's describing and when he says it's fucking awful. It's like an abscess in your brain, but he does the hand gesture to his head, and it, it's so well acted. Yeah. Very good. I mean, in in the book, it's um, like because because Tommy survives the first book. The the, the character that that because that little monologue comes out of the character Matty's funeral, and he's quite a big character in the book as well, but. I think they, he, everyone else kind of kills him off about two thirds in. I think, but he goes back to him in the prequel book, Skag Boys, and I think he even appears in Glue as well, Matty. In a, just a, a I think he part. does, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, mean, I suppose Kevin McKidd has become, I mean, he's a big star in America, right? He was in Grey's Anatomy and he was in Rome, uh, the HBO one, uh, which was, I watched that. I thought it was really good, Rome. I really enjoyed it. Um, he's, yeah, I mean, he's, he's like a household name in, a, in the US now, Kevin McKidd. And then I suppose the last big part that we need to talk about is uh, is Kelly McDonald. Not, not not a huge, but a certainly very important part is, uh, is the 15-year-old jailbait, <laughs> Diane. I mean, she's she's very good. It's, her journey to the movies uh, quite interesting because she, she hadn't really done any professional acting before. She went to an open casting call. Danny Boyle wanted a unknown actress to play Diane, so the surprise, spoilers, when uh, after Renton sleeps with her and he finds out the next morning that she's, um, she's still a schoolgirl. So he didn't want an actress that people knew. It'd be harder to believe them as um, as as a schoolgirl um, because she was only nineteen. But she, I guess she looks, especially when they put her in her school uniform in the later scenes. She looks, uh, she does look quite young. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, her introduction is incredible. This this strong, feisty female character in the film, and the way Mark approaches her as they leave the volcano club. Mm-hmm. And she just gives him this speech, but then leaves the taxi door open. Yeah, it, it, it's great. And I think the first time I saw it, yeah, didn't see that coming that she was a schoolgirl. But yeah, she's she's brilliant. I mean, she's I get me. She's also gone on to be for, for a really successful career. She's you know, she was in a Boardwalk Empire, the sort of spiritual spiritual sequel to The Sopranos, and as much that the writers and all that, it was the next thing they did all the way through. I mean, she's she's a Disney princess. She does um, I can't remember the name of the character, but she does the girl in Brave, mm. um, Merida, I think it is. Um, you know, she's in the next series of Line of Duty as well. Apparently, yeah. When it comes out, yeah, she's done. She's she's done really well. But yeah, she's uh, you know for someone who has never who had never done any professional acting before, you know, and I know all the cat. Well, certainly, Hugh McGregor, I think, was in his early twenties. He wasn't that much older than uh, than Kelly McDonald, and that maybe mm. I think he's like twenty four, twenty five, something like that, like a huge amount older. Um, but she said, I was watching. I watched a bit of an interview with her on YouTube on um, the TVAM, uh, whatever it's called. It's on ITV now in the mornings. And she she was talking about a drama that she had just done for the BBC. Um, and they talked to her about Trainspot. And then she said that there was a green room for the actors and actresses on Trainspotting. But she was so intimidated by the cast that she, she just couldn't go in there. So she, every time, the, every time the, the, the runners were looking for her, she was always hiding in the toilets. But she said she, she couldn't look Hugh McGregor in the eye. Because it's like it's her, it's her first uh, role in a movie, and she has to do like I guess reasonably graphic sex, graphic in as much that she has to appear naked, and it's a fairly it's a reasonably graphic sex scene that she does. That know? sex scene had to be cut in the American version of Train Spotting. They cut about three or four seconds out of it right. because uh, Diane was enjoying herself too much. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, I think it was because she's because she then is revealed that she's a schoolgirl. Then right. it can't be seen that she's enjoying it too much. So right. yeah, there was a few seconds of that cut in the American version. But yes, it is a yeah, it's a pretty graphic sex scene. I, I have watched it many times, and it's yeah, it is quite graphic. I read, I read, or no, I think in one of the little documentaries that I watched about the making of Chain Spot, and apparently some of for when the movie was released in the US, they did some pickups. 
where they ask the actors to re-record some of their dialogue and make it a little bit clearer so uh, American audiences could understand it but apparently they still had the subtitle because <laughs> 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 um, uh, yeah I don't know how you would uh, you know, it just makes me think of that Burniston um, sketch with the three litre bottle of ginger movie adaptation <laughs> of the incident you know but yeah I mean she you know she's uh, you know to, to, to hear her say I couldn't look you McGregor in the eye I was really intimidated and all that it, that doesn't come across on the movie at all you know she no seems, no no that, that scene you mentioned outside the nightclub she's very much in charge of that scene you know as a, as she's supposed to be but you know she's uh, she does um, yeah she's really really good really, even really the good. follow-up scene when they're walking to school and <laughs> She says to him, if you don't see me again, I'll call the police. Do you know what they do to guys like me in prison, Diane? They cut our balls off and flush them in the fucking toilet. <laughs> so we've covered the cast. To, to talk about the film for a bit, I know we've kind of jumped around. Is there a better opening to a film than seeing Mark Renton and Spud bombing down the street and Lust for Life playing? I don't know. I mean, I was I was thinking to myself, is there is there any movies that go right into it in the same way as Chainspot? And I don't think there is. It's just a hell of an opening. Yeah. I, it's so good. And I, I've been struggling to think of a film that instantly, within the first second, you're like, wow, yeah. this is this is it. And I think it sets, so I was going to say, I think it sets the tone for the, the whole movie because they'd be touched on earlier it just never lets up the film it's like 90 minutes so much happens it moves at a real pace you know and it's so cleverly done in that you you have the the choose life speech going over and then of course it shows these five guys as friends and playing five aside and of course the names flash up which is very strange for a film but again you instantly know there's no need for introductions oh hi i'm mark oh hi i'm tommy we've been at school for all these years there's no need for that you know instantly who these characters are and then boom it's straight into swannies it's it, <laughs> yeah it, it just does not give you a second but then even after that they do a very good job of properly introducing the characters one by one in a way that each have their little own three four minute kind of segment where you get to know who that character is and then mm. again as you say the film just just keeps going uh, to talk about the the first scene as you mentioned earlier when uh, Sick Boy is giving his Dr. No speech, a flashback to one of the first things I've, the first time I've realised this watching this film Sick Boy is, whilst he's giving his speech he's cooking up and he's about to inject Alison. Is that Alison's first hit? I don't know, I don't think so. I, I never got the I never got the feeling that it was but maybe that's because I'd read the book. I, don't know. I wasn't sure, but I'd, I'd never thought that before. But it's almost something about the, the kind of fear and trepidation in her face and the way right. Sick Boy's like, do you want me to do it? And then her reaction is like, yeah. that's better than any cock in the world. It is, would you say that? Maybe you would if you'd had it many times, but I just wondered if that was the, the first time. But then maybe not, because obviously she's there with Baby Dawn. She's obviously around all the time. As we know, Baby Dawn is Simon, so she must have been there about because Baby Dawn is there in that scene. Yeah. So maybe it's not. That was just one thing I wondered and wanted to, to ask you what you thought of that yeah i mean i i can like I say maybe it's because i had read the book but it never occurred to me that it might be her first hit 
You, I mean, you could be right. I'm not sure. But the, the interesting thing about that is that little scene is that it. You see Baby Dawn in the background, and she sort. There's a kind of look exchanged between her and Sick Boy, and it's almost like she's telling him for the first time that Dawn is his baby. You know what I mean? Because mm. like, there's a there's a bit more mystery around who the baby's father is in the book, especially the chapter when uh, when they find that she's died a cot death in her crib. But uh, yeah, you, you could be right. I mean, the, that actress that plays Alice, and I'm not. I'm not. I didn't. Really look her up on IMDb but I don't never don't think I've ever seen her in anything else she's a big character in the book Alice and she, she's a she's actually a, a, a much bigger character in the in the follow up in Porno and later on in Dead Men's Trousers and it's Skag Boy she's one of the principal characters right okay so you've got a lot of characters that we said before I guess they can't all make it onto the screen I know of course and I think a lot of characters get kind of melded into one and quite quickly you get the the idea of, of Sick Boy and Mark's relationship I'd, I'd love the part where Mark decides that's it. He's had enough. He's off the skag. And he walks up to who we haven't spoken about yet. Oh, yeah, Peter Mullen. Johnny Swan, Peter Mullen. <laughs> and when he says, I'm using the sick boy method, <laughs> sick boy is laying out, sparked out, full of skag. And Peter Mullen says, oh, that's worked out well for him, isn't it? And he's, well, he's always been lacking in moral fibre. <laughs> I mean, talk about Peter Mullen and, and Johnny Swan. A fantastic performance, again, and yeah. such a great character. He's a brown actor, and there's there's a scene um, that didn't make it to the didn't make it into the uh, into the final cut of the film. But I've seen it on the on like the special editions and stuff where uh, Renton goes to visit Johnny Swan in the hospital, and he's had his had to have his leg removed because uh, the veins had collapsed because he's you know he's ran out of places to inject himself, um, and he he talks he says how he. He's going to go to Thailand and all that kind of thing. And then later on, there's a shorter scene that's cut out. There's a very quick flash when um, Renton's running at the bus stop and outside the bus stop, he doesn't notice him, but Johnny Swan's there and he's holding a Falklands veteran sign. Um, and he's sitting begging for money. And I guess, I guess they just, these scenes got taken out because of, uh, you know, sort of time constraints and maybe it slowed the pacing down or whatever. But uh, but they're, they're good callbacks to the book because I know that in the book, there's a scene, that scene's in the book, isn't it? And there's a whole that chapter about how Johnny Swan is cheerfully defrauding the people of Edinburgh, uh, pretending to be a Falklands war victim, and even this woman whose son is killed in the Falklands, like who gives him twenty quid and all that. <laughs> but yeah, he's I mean you know, we've we've had Peter Mullen on the Swally before when we did Orphans. Uh he's just he's a phenomenal actor. I do, he, he, he's another one that I'll watch in anything. Yeah, he's really good. It's it's the, the the guy's a massive drug dealer, so there's a sinister edge to him, but he's just such a comedic character as well. So happy go lucky. And I and not to go on, this could be the last time I'll mention the sequel because mentioned it a few times, but there's a great because I just watched it yesterday, it's why it's fresh in my mind. Yeah. But th- there's a great part where a sick boy says to Renton, you know, Swanee's dead and Renton says that I'd be amazed if he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> the scene where Renton has the overdose and the the this 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 the kind of one up to that to his actual overdose when he goes to he goes to Johnny Swan's and Johnny Swan's like the waiter uh, with 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 sort of like a starter perhaps some garlic bread uh, no I think I'll go straight to the intravenous injection of hard drugs please. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a, a, that whole scene is incredible. I love the, the comedy aspect of, as you say, then Renton obviously starts having an overdose and Swanee just leans over. Would sir like me to call him a taxi? And... <laughs> then you see the ambulance going down the street and through the street and Swanee's got his big Matrix leather coat on <laughs> pulling him down the stairs banging his head and you see the ambulance and it just goes past the street and then a taxi pulls up <laughs> Swanee <laughs> chucks him in the taxi, sticks a fiver in the top pocket, pats it, off you go uh, the comedy of that because it's the misdirection that you're thinking, yeah, okay yeah. this ambulance is obviously for Mark, no it's actually getting a taxi. But th- th- there's also something because like in, in the book it's mentioned how they all knew each other Johnny Swan included right when they were younger young boys and stuff and I think that scene maybe just for me it's because like you can't imagine there's many drug dealers that are going to put somebody in a taxi and send them to the hospital when they overdose and I, you know and he, when he sticks the, the tenor in Renton's shirt pocket and he sort of gives him a bit of a, a sort of affectionate tap on the cheek like you'll be alright or whatever and I sort of you know I think it you know, it, it does for the movie. It kind of speaks to that history between the characters a bit. You know, um, that it's not just they're not just associates or whatever. There is a there is some there's a, a deeper friendship there. And I guess it was it would probably be more if they had left the scene in where he goes to see him in the hospital after his his leg amputated. I guess it would have been a bit more been explained a bit more or been a bit clearer. Um, but yeah, it's a good scene that, and it's got like my favorite song from the soundtrack, um, "Perfect Day" by Lou Reed. It's, my, it, it's not just one of my favorite songs. And this, my favorite song on the soundtrack. It's one of my favorite songs. That's brilliant. I'd never heard it before. I saw Trainspotting. I never heard it, but it's but when I it's one of the, you know like when when you hear a song and it's sort of got its hooks into you after like the first thirty seconds or whatever of the song. You're just like yeah, I fucking love that. It's brilliant. Like some songs. Do you need to hear them a few times? I think before they really get their hooks into you. But for me, speaking personally, that song—I um, I couldn't wait to go out and buy the soundtrack when it was released for that song. Slightly spoiled for me when the BBC used it yeah. for so like "Children in Need" with Heather Small and stuff. And I think Tom Jones, Boyzone. Someone did point out. Do you realise what this song's about? It's about you know, it's it's about Lou Reed waiting to for his heroin dealer to come along and and oh really? Oh well, we're going to use it for children in need anyway. (laughs) In fact, to talk about the soundtrack, did you know the the Lou Reed song Perfect Day and Lust for Life, Iggy Pop, how they managed to get those songs for so cheap for the soundtrack? No. No. Because David Bowie was a massive fan of Shallow Grave. Right. He absolutely loved Shallow Grave and got in touch with Danny Boyle and they built up a, a little friendship and he'd mentioned about he was doing this film train spotting and how we'd love to get these two songs but the fee for them was astronomical and they were working on such a tight budget and Bowie said yeah well I know Lou and Iggy let me have a word with them he did and he got them for like a massively reduced rate and I think it was maybe part of the deal because then Iggy Pop re-released Lust for Life yeah. and Danny Boyle directed the music video for it so I think that was maybe part of the deal but yeah it was thanks to David Bowie that those two songs made it into the final cut of Train Spotting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and they, they, I think they're probably the two. Well, there's probably those two songs and um, "Born Slippy" by Underworld. Mm. The outro. They're, they're probably the three songs that are the most associated with the movie. But what I read when I was doing, which I didn't know this before, but when I was reading about the making of the film, or I can't remember if it was if I read it or if it was on one of the documentaries, but Danny Boyle wanted the soundtrack to sort of represent 
the passing of time in the narrative of the film, you know. So um, I think the, the the film was supposed to sort of take place over the space of maybe two or three years, um, and that you know by, by by using although there's not there's like Atomic, which is a Blondie song, but it's covered by Sleeper. Um, there's there's some songs that didn't make it onto the first uh, soundtrack album, like Heaven Seventeen, uh, Temptation. That's not in the original. I think that came out in the Green mm. soundtrack, didn't it? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I was sort of thought that was quite interesting because I, I think that's maybe one thing that the movie doesn't exactly nail is the kind of is this conveyance of the passing of time you could be forgiven for thinking that it, it just all happens in the space of I don't know whatever like a year or a few months or whatever they, I think when there's a conversation between Diane and Rent and later on in the movie when she comes around to his flat when they're talking about Iggy Pop and she says oh he's, he's dead anyway and he says Iggy Pop's not dead Tommy went to see him last year and I think that's really the only thing that sort of suggests that it's hap- the, the the story that's in the film has happened over a couple of years. Yeah, that's true. Never thought about that. Yeah, that's a very good point. But that was it. Was interesting to hear Danny Boyle say that he, he really wanted the soundtrack to do that to do that work for him. You know, and of course, uh, Primal Scream recorded uh, a song specially for the movie called Trainspot in the kind of instrumental. I think that was that was that was around the time that they were doing like kind of Vanishing Point album and stuff like that. Mm. You know, when they, they they kind of went they kind of went away from just straight kind of rock music and, and something a bit more interesting. There's so many amazing scenes in this film. Like, it, it's hard to pinpoint for the awards in terms of best scene. I'm, I'm really struggling. I've got a couple that are in my mind, but there are so many iconic scenes in this film that just make it so difficult. And you could quote any to people and they will know what you're on about you know from Begbie throwing the pint jug over the bar sorry the balcony and into you know the the scene in the park where they shoot the dog and with an air rifle for anyone that hasn't seen it and if you haven't seen it why you listen to this go and watch it um <laughs> into the the withdrawal scene with baby dawn you know on on the ceiling yeah. and of course dale winton his only film oh, appearance yeah yeah the late dale winton does dale winton have more lines in this film than james cosmo he might do actually yeah i was surprised watching this back how little james cosmo says in this film and even the sequel he's got about three lines but in this film cosmo hardly says a word yeah he's uh, and then yeah in the sequel i don't think he says anything does he does he I, I think in his second scene he doesn't say anything but in his first scene he does he he says to Mark um, it was peaceful at the end she asked for you like she always hoped you'd come home right oh, I think yeah. that's it I think that's pretty much it yeah but yeah, in the in the first film, he's got about four or five lines. It, the most lines he says is probably with Dale Winton. But yeah, I think Dale Winton has more lines in this film than James Cosmo. I'd need to go back and fact check that, but <laughs> no, it's probably you're, you're probably right. I think we we touched on this in the shallow grave one. This thing that Danny Boyle it's gone three occasions, well, two occasions, and then by uh, putting a game show and like a fake game show into his movie, and then doing a whole Oscar-winning movie about a game show. But there are, as I say, so many iconic and big scenes in this film. And probably one of the biggest is the only scene in this film I fucking hate. Which scene's that? The worst toilet in Scotland. Yeah. I I just do not like this scene. And it's nothing to be with being disgusted or being upset at the amount of shite, which was actually chocolate, by the way, when they were filming (laughs) it. So, But I, I just don't like it. It just takes it out. The only part of the scene I like is when he gets the suppositories back at the end and he shouts underwater, you fucking dancer. 
I, I just don't like that part. I, I understand why it's there. It's yeah. to show the lengths that he will go to to get his drugs, what he will go through in order to get his hit and his fix. But I, there's just something about that scene just doesn't sit right with me and it just takes me out of the film. And then I yeah. have to kind of come back in. I guess maybe that is the point. Maybe much like him being going down and going out of the world and then coming back in. But I just, I'm not a fan of that scene at all. Well, apparently, we sort of touched on it earlier, Danny Boyle didn't want to have a straight narrative to the movie. He wanted it to be kind of closer in style to the book. So whereas the book is short chapter stories that are all connected, the, the, the movie is a lot of like very quick scenes, but there's, a, there's, a, there's hints of surrealism in the book and that toilet scene is sort of Danny Boyle trying to sort of stay along the same lines because obviously it's it's exactly as you said but it's a very surreal scene he obviously didn't really go down and like, climb down the impossible but that yeah but that's it's to do with Danny Boyle trying to keep the same sort of style as the book but yeah I mean, and the thing is every time I see it that toilet just looks worse every single time and there's a there's a cool little callback in T2 in the club when he opens the first he's like oh fucking hell and then he finds a theme one no I, I you know, I'm 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 with you. I mean, there's there's a couple of scenes that it's not it's not it's not that I don't like them. It's just that they're just they're they're hard to watch. Like the 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 dead baby scenes, like when they find her in the car, and then later on, you know, in fact, the, the whole scene where Renton is hallucinating when he's in his bed and he's going through withdrawal. The whole scene's quite hard to watch, you know. Um, you know, and I get, I guess, I guess it's it, it's it's intended to be and like the scene like we mentioned earlier when the guy gets the glass smashed into his face in the pub in London. Yeah, I mean, I don't dislike them, but they're difficult to watch. I, I, I think I mentioned it the last time. I, I, I'm a bit, I'm a bit more sensitive than I was when <laughs> Chainspotting came out. I'm getting old. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people will remember from the film, though. I, th- I think with my wife, I, I'd mentioned we were doing it. I'd said, "Do you want to watch?" watch it again no it's okay uh, no I, I did the baby across the ceiling and mm. i think that is what a lot of people took away from this film the dead baby crawling across the ceiling and it, it, yeah. it's horrific but yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's not a great effect in 2021 you know what i mean it's obviously a kind of animatronic thing on a you can even see the kind of rail that it's on <laughs> you know what i mean but then you, you always forget when it drops down on him <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then you are a bit like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Take that away. <laughs> uh, again, other iconic scenes, the the job interview scene yeah. with, with Spud. And uh, that is just wonderful from you and Bremener. It is the what attracted to you, the leisure industry. And it's the look away and the look back. <laughs> and the... It's... It, oh. So simple, but so funny. And uh, in our pleasure. And he does so well in that scene. And it's just mm. little things of, you know, when he's going up to say goodbye and thank them for their time and he shakes the woman's <laughs> hand and he goes to kiss the guy. <laughs> so don't take speed before a job interview, kids. <laughs> I tell you a scene I like. Well, it's, it's not even a whole scene. It's just like a little part of a scene. But at the end, when the when they've sold... When, well, when Keith Allen's character takes the drug user into the bathroom to test the heroin they're trying to sell and um, Begbie likes it. And the reason I like the scene is because it kind of resonates. It'll resonate with you as well. But... <laughs> Begby lights a cigarette and a sick boy kind of pats his pockets and asks for one <laughs> and Begby throws it to him and then he asks for a light as well and he's like you fucking hell. <laughs> my normal um, reaction to that would have been do you want me to smoke it for you as well 
<laughs> it's, it's just you know it's just that i mean i guess it, i guess there's supposed to be a, an element of tension in the scene and it's just it's it's more begby's sort of reaction to sick boy catching a cigarette off him you know he just he sort of throws it to him and then this way kind of his shoulders kind of fall back when he's got to give him a light as well it's really funny and if to mention keith allen watching it again i'm like yeah it's it's definitely hugo from shallow grave yeah Without a doubt, it's it's the same character, no question. Dressed the same. Nice way to connect the movies together, you know. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Um, I tell you something that I learned when I was doing my research that I didn't know was, and I I feel like I should have known this because I know the the movie I'm going to talk about quite well. But in the Clockwork Orange film, when they're in the Maloko bar, there's like writing on the wall behind Mm. Malcolm Dill. When when they're in a nightclub in Train Spotting, and uh, Spud and Tommy are talking about how uh, Spud uh, Gay won't have sex with, they've got the Spud, they've got the same writing on there. But Mm. the other thing I found out was so the song that's on at the time I mentioned already is um, Temptation by Heaven Seven. The band in the Book of Clockwork Orange is called Heaven Seventeen, and that was why. Wow, that was one of the reasons for having that song in that particular part of the soundtrack. That was quite cool. I I do like that. That is a good fact. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. The other part of that scene is now there are subtitles because I think the music is too loud and and it comes up. But have you noticed the subtitles in terms of they don't follow exactly what the characters are saying and the subtitles are different because Tommy speaks about that he had tickets for a pop and Spud says to him, um, was she upset? And Tommy says, big time, absolutely fucking raj. And on the subtitle that comes up, very. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> is that just a little subtle joke, like I for so, you yeah. know us to pick up on? But I, I did like that as well. It makes me laugh every time I watch it. I mean, I think the the surprise of uh, Train Spotting is its international success. It's got a it, the the movie has a ninety one percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Rolling Stone uh, said at the time uh, the guy the the writer Peter Travers Rolling Stone said. The, fil- the film's flash can't disguise the emptiness of these blasted lives. Trainspotting is 90 minutes of raw power that Boyle and a bang-on cast inject right into the vein. I would agree with that, definitely. Yeah. But the US Senator Bob Dole accused the film of moral depravity and glorifying drug use in his 1996 US presidential campaign, although he did later admit that he hadn't seen the film. <laughs> A fucking twat. Do you think it it glorifies drug use? Not at all. To be completely I mean, honest, no. To be completely honest, no. It, it certainly doesn't glamorise heroin. And the only other drug that you really see being abused in the film is is the speed and the and maybe hash, I suppose. But uh, it didn't make me. It didn't. It certainly wouldn't. It, it did not make seventeen year old impressionable Greg want to rush out and try heroin. The scene where Tommy comes to to Mark and wants to to get some heroin and. I mean, that's the worst you see Renton in the film. He looks like yeah. a fucking mess. And Tommy's yeah. still wanting to, to try this. Doesn't look like a good idea to me. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of other films, like Human Traffic, for example, I would say that does glamorise the use of ecstasy. Undoubtedly. 100%. <laughs> yeah. But train spotting, no, I wouldn't say it, it would glamorise heroin. And in fact, in Human Traffic, I think they do reference train spotting, don't they? Is there not a Years scene where. 
I, I'm sure there's a scene where someone they are speaking about someone about drug use, and and one yeah. of them says, "Oh yeah, as soon as I saw a strain spotting, I wanted to go and cook up," but you know, in a sarcastic way, which yeah. I think again is kind of like then a meta joke, maybe that would right. be. Yeah. But um, I I don't know, but yeah, that that massively glamorizes drug use. Train spotting, I I don't think so at all. I, mean, I, I would say the a- sequel does. The sequel glamorizes cocaine a little bit right. <laughs> in a couple of scenes, but. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say this glamorized heroin at all. I mean, I don't, um, you know, they, I, when, when, when Chainsmotting came out, I remember it was certainly in the kind of popular press. It was like, and as, and as much as it was still praised in the popular press, it was like the kind of, it was, it was the heroin movie. But when you think about all the things, when, when I think about how you and I discuss Chainsmotting in years gone by and what was spoken about and discussing the books and everything, heroin's not really a big part of it for me, you know? And, and in watching it back, you know, they yeah, there's there's scenes when they're at Swanies and stuff like that, and there's the overdose scene and everything. But and, and maybe it's because of the sequel, because the sequel is about aging and friendship and stuff like that. And I I, I do feel that the the original film is it's more about friendship than it is mm. necessarily about yeah about drug abuse they just happen some of the characters just happen to be drug addicts you know what I mean um, and they happen to be addicted to heroin and they, we know that um, Edinburgh had a had a real problem with uh, heroin abuse and as a as a consequence HIV and AIDS in the 1980s but certainly when we by the time that Trainspot and by the time the book was released Edinburgh had kind of um, I, I was watching an interview with Irvin Welsh and he said you know by the, by the time he, by the time the book came out Edinburgh had kind of got its arms around the heroin problem it wasn't as big an issue as it was in the 80s when we set the book and it, the kind of problem had kind of moved to Glasgow the big parts of Glasgow you know um, but yeah I don't when, when I think of train spot and you know when it, when it comes up in my mind it's it's some of these these great scenes and some of the great dialogue they would beg be walking down the stairs in the bar after throwing a glass over is I'm sure I must have quoted that about a million times when I was younger you know um, you know I think about the soundtrack you know all that kind of thing I don't it's not the, the, the character of heroin I suppose in the book is not the first thing that comes to mind when I think about it you know and we haven't even touched upon the, the countryside scene of yeah it's shite being Scottish <laughs> Probably one of the, the best lines from the film in terms of the, the quote that Ewan McGregor delivers there, his little lines. It's shite being Scottish! We're the lowest of the low! The scum of the fucking earth! The most wretched, miserable, servile, pathetic trash that was ever shot into civilization. Some people hate the English, I don't! They're just wankers! We, on the other hand, are colonised by wankers! Can't even find a decent culture to be colonised by. We're ruled by a few assholes. It's a shite state of affairs to be in, Tommy, and all the fresh air in the world won't make any fucking difference. Yeah, and the thing is, you sort of it, it, it does it resonates a bit. I'm not saying that it's shite being Scottish because I love being Scottish, but you still in his little kind of rant that he has, you sort of understand where he's coming from. You know, doesn't never it's never changed my opinion. You know, of being Scottish myself, but I have I cannot I have a bit of empathy. I understand what he's talking about to a sense. You know, I think my favourite part of that speech though is the last couple of lines, which I will drop in here, which is the it's a shite 
right state of affairs, Tommy, and no amount of fresh air is going to make any bit of fucking difference. <laughs> yeah, I love, I, I, love, I love as well when they're when they're walking away and Spud's trying to apologise to Tommy and all that. He's like, "Sorry, man. He's like, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry." <laughs> Spud, you know, trying to be the peacemaker and the and all that. I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about the legacy of the movie. In 1999, it was ranked 10th in a poll by the BFI, the British Film Institute, to you and I, uh, and it's top 100 British films of all time. Um, Total Film Magazine named it the fourth greatest British film of all time. Uh, The same year, Channel 4 named it the greatest British film of all time. The Observer polled several filmmakers and film critics who voted it the best film in the last 25 years. In 2004, it was voted the best Scottish film of all time by The List. Um, so that's not bad going at all. Uh, John Hodge was nominated. Uh, John Hodge won, sorry, uh, a Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was nominated for two British BAFTAs, and didn't win either of them. It won the Golden Space Needle for Best Film at the 1996 Seattle International Film Festival. And Hugh McGregor was named Best Actor from the London Film Critics Circle. Oh no, sorry, it says Hodge lost. He, he, sorry, he, he was nominated for. Um, best adapted screenplay in the American or sorry I'm mixing up between um, I'm getting mixed up between the BAFTAs and the the Oscars so he was nominated for the Oscar but he lost to Billy Bob Thornton's uh, Sling Blade but he won the BAFTA for best adapted screenplay so would you say this is the best Scottish film of all time uh, I think I probably would have to say it is I think for me personally just because like I said at the top of the podcast I think there are things that come into your life at a certain time whether it's a movie or a book or whatever um, so for me personally it's certainly my favourite Scottish movie of all time whether it's the best then I'd I'd leave that up to more skilled people than I to litigate that okay well that's it for the culture Sally we have no more to review so uh, (laughs) thank you very much for listening Uh, yeah I'm probably going to have to agree with you I I think we can look back on films like Gregory's Girl for example we've reviewed and films that we are going to review like Local Hero uh, films that are just so iconic and so Scottish and part of me growing up but I don't think anything beats train spotting for me but it, probably but just because I was just that age and at yeah. the right time and it just hit me so well and it was just so iconic and such a movement and had such an impact in me hey I mean I grew up at that time and like I say said earlier in the episode in terms of they, they wanted to make this kind of the British pop fiction pop fiction was Again, my kind of era, my time, my Mm -hmm. wheelhouse. I don't think it's Tarantino's best film, so I will stand away from that. I I think it's great. Probably his third best film, in my opinion. But I will say Trainspotting, yeah, probably is the best Scottish film. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for me, I think so. I mean, you know, it's... You know, like before that, you know, before Chainspot and In Shallow Grave, I guess you didn't really see a lot of um, mainstream Scottish movies. You know, we had just we were just off the back of fucking Rob Roy and Braveheart the year before Chainspot <laughs> came out. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Rob Roy or Braveheart, but they're looking at they're looking at a sort of romanticised version of Scottish history and Scottish heroes. Whereas Chainspot, and for all its sort of uh, kind of surrealism and subversion. 
version. It's it's you know if well whether it's true to life or not, I I don't know because I've never been in the situation these characters are in. But it certainly feels very true to life. Mm. But still, it's it's not it's not true to life like Sweet Sixteen is in that you kind of go away from it feeling a bit kind of oh it's a bit of a downer how that movie ended you know or or even or or Orph- I mean orphans is a bit more surreal in some senses as well but it's kind of heavy you know and train spotting i think it, it it's it it's got a very heavy subject matter but it carries it very easily and very quickly you know and uh i just hadn't seen a scottish film like that before ever you know, before when i was a kid and how do you feel about the ending in terms of mark ripping off his mates and fucking off for a new life he doesn't say where in the book it is mentioned it is amsterdam yeah yeah and obviously we know in the sequel that he's been in amsterdam i i never bumped into him but <laughs> is how do you feel about that i mean i i think you know he leaves spud his share effectively yeah. which and as he says sick boy would have done it if he could have thought of it first or had had the opportunity to do it first. <sighs> I don't know. I'm on the fence about what he did. To be fair, he put up half the money anyway. Yeah, I know. For it. <laughs> so, kind of deserves it, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... You know, I've, I think the fact that he... There's the little sort of... That quick little bit where you where we learn that he's left Spud his share in the locker, which it sort of absolves him a bit, I think, of ripping off Franco and Sick Boy because Franco is, you know, as much as he is... He's a good character. He's a good character to watch. He's not like a likable character, and you know because he's so fucking scary. And especially in those last couple of scenes of the film that with you know the glassing etc. Um, and you know, sick boy. He's you know, you McGregor justifies it exactly as you said. Like he says, well, he he did the same thing, and and actually he he says it himself, doesn't he, sick boy? He says when he comes back from the toilet, oh, he says, oh, you're still here then, and he, and Brent says, well, wouldn't run out in a mate, and he says, I know I would, you know. So you know, for me, you think, well, you don't feel so bad about what well, about um sick boy and uh, and Renton, but sorry, sick boy and Begby, but what I think is. Uh, and it, it it's it's kind of conveyed better in the in the prequel books is how hurt Begbie is by it by the betrayal. You know what I mean? The, you sort of see it later on in the in the next movie, but and certainly in in porno he is um, he's crushed by it. You know what I mean? Like he's it it, it drives his behaviour. And I think he even says, because he, he gets he's released from prison near the beginning of porno, and I think he says that part of the reason that he went so mental when he battered the guy and stabbed him and put him in prison is because he was still so fucking angry about what had happened to mm. what Renton had done to him. Yeah. Um but yeah, like you know, I think it's I think it's a great ending, you know, because we 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 like Renton all the way through, right? regardless of what he does. Even um, like sabotage, inadvertently sabotaging Tommy's relationship with Lizzie by stealing the tape. Um, mm. you know, like the scene with him and Spuds like nick the TV out of the old folks' home. Mm. You no, know, you know, like fairly reprehensible fucking acts, but you still you still like him. You know what I mean? You you, you kind of want him to kind of get to kind of clean up and stop taking drugs and sort himself out and everything. So it is quite an uplifting ending in a way as well, you know, as much as he's he's ripped off his friends. And wonderful bookmark of the film in terms of bookmark, bookend. Yeah. At the start, you have the choose life speech and at the end you have the I'm choosing life speech. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm going to be just like, I'm going to be just like you. Yeah. Yeah. Although I didn't, I don't remember seeing that at the cinema and thinking, I, I live at home, my mum and dad. I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have a fucking big television. <laughs> yeah. So shall we, shall we put Train Spotting through the, through 
through the categories, through the... Let's do it, yes. Okay, what have you got up first? Archetypal Scottish moment. All right, what did you go for on this? I had a couple, there's quite a, there's a few, but I had, there's a phrase that I grew up hearing, and then when I moved away from Glasgow, people didn't say it, and to hear it on screen for the first time, for me, there's something very Scottish about it even now, and you'll you think this is mad, but when he, we're in that surreal scene that we don't really like, and he picks up the tablets at the bottom of the pool, and he goes, yes, you're a fucking dancer! We used to say that all the time when I was a little kid in Glasgow, oh, you're a dancer, you know? But I just, when we moved, we moved away, when I was like eight and I just never heard that people didn't, just didn't say it and people said didn't say it in, out in uh, the northeast of Scotland so to hear that on screen when I was 17 and even now to hear it I, I really like it <laughs> it just really reminds me of being a kid in Scotland for some reason fair enough yeah I know it's a good uh, I would go with that yeah well, what did you have? I had Archie Gemmell scoring against Holland in 1978 yeah. <laughs> what a penetrating goal <laughs> What more do you need? It's that's the archetypal Scottish moment. It's uh, <laughs> it, it played out forever in our history, and it's it just beautifully used in the film. Phenomenal. Did, yeah. Did I did I read the uh, was it Archie McPherson? Did he re-record? Yeah. Did he record it again? For yes, Archie he did. Was yeah. It? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Archie McPherson. Yes, he did. He re-recorded it because he is down in the cast list um, for that because otherwise it would have been down as archive footage. But yeah, he. I'm sure I've heard an interview with him when he said, yeah, he did sit down and, and re-recorded it and he didn't quite realise what it was going to be played out against when he re-recorded it. <laughs> and then when he saw it, he was like, ah, oh, it's okay. I get paid. I get paid anyway, so fuck it. <laughs> um... <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of there's, there's 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 two awards that are a bit redundant here, but we'll go through them anyway. Uh, the James Cosmo Award for being in everything Scottish, James Cosmo, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, it has to be. Although he's got less lines than Dale Winton, yes, it has to be James Cosmo. <laughs> Still yeah. in it. Still. <laughs> uh, the Francis Begbie Award for best swearing. I mean, there's a lot of good swearing in it. You know? uh, there's a lot, and I have changed my mind a couple of times. Right. I had one that was my favourite, and then I've I've gone with which I think will probably be your choice, which will make it the winner. But my my first choice instantly was I love the ending with Keith Allen when they're <laughs> they're doing the negotiation, and he's just, you know twenty nineteen, and then Begbie. Just... This was a real drag to him. He didn't need to negotiate. I mean, what the fuck were we going to do with it if he didn't buy it? Sell it on the streets? Fuck that. Well, nineteen. Terribly sorry, I can't go to 19. Well, fucking 16 then. Okay. Well, fucking 16 it is then. I love the use, just the, of the punctuation there. Love that. Yeah. But then I did change my mind. I really, I wanted to have the Mikey Forrester you, uh, Renton exchange about the suppositories where Renton is, oh, for all the good they, for all the good they've done me, I might as well have stuck up my arse. But it's not a very sweary word, arse, in 2021. You probably, they, they, they probably say arse on Blue Peter these days. Do you know what I mean? I just, I think it just has to be, I think it has to be uh, Bobby Carlyle walking down the stairs because he, he sort of punctuates as he's stepping down the stairs, <laughs> taking yeah. a step, you know? And, they, you know, I, I don't think... I'm not sure there's been many films that have had more liberal uses of the word cunt, apart from probably Sweet 16, to be honest, yeah. as, uh, as uh, train spotting. So, yeah, I think I, as much as I would like to not be too obvious, I think it still has to be that one. Oh, what a 
Percy got glassed and no cunt leaves here till we find out what cunt did it. Who the fuck are you? Yeah! And that was what I changed it to. That was my, yeah. I was like, it has to be that. Only other option I have, and it is something I still use to this day, is during the cafe scene before the job interview and uh, Spud and uh, Renton are chatting about it and Renton says, it's a fucking tightrope, Spud. I, I still use that to this day when I'm, I'm speaking <laughs> about something. I will say it's a fucking tightrope. Okay, so the most Taggart appearances <laughs> goes to uh, Finlay Welsh, who plays the judge who sends down uh, Renton and... Uh, sends down Spud, sorry, and lets Renton off with six uh, appearances. Going wow. all the way back to Knife Edge in 1986, which is the first appearance of... Uh, uh, what's his name? James McPherson. No, Alex... Um, Alex from... Alex fucking, Norton. Alex Norton on my life. <laughs> wrong me today. He's top of the um, swally tally. Top of the swally tally, yeah. Fucking what a moron. And then the Hugh McGregor Award for most gratuitous nudity. I think it has to go to Hugh McGregor for the scene where he pulls the condom off his dick when he gets chucked out yeah. of the room. Yeah, definitely has to. I mean, Ewan Bremner gets a, a mention there because obviously yeah. DC has Tadger, but it has to go to Ewan McGregor. Yeah, that scene where he pulls off the condom is, yeah, without a doubt, yeah, go with that. The Jake McQuillan Your Tease Out Award. I had the glassing in the pub in, Edinburgh, in London, but also the mugging of the tourist in the toilets. I, I would say there's no question it's the glassing in the, the bar. Uh, when I was re-watching it, despite how many times I've seen this film and I'm thinking about awards, I, I did have down the the mugging of the American tourist and then we got to the glassing scene and as soon as they sat down in that pub and were watching it and uh, Sleeper are playing, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck yeah, I remember what's coming next. That's my... And I, I can't... I can hardly watch that scene. When he just glasses him, it's... It's, it's horrific. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. So that has to be the most violent scene, without a doubt. And then, last but not least, and it's a really hard one, but what's the best scene in the film? Oh, well, second to last, we've still got another award, haven't we? Uh, who won the movie for the uh, oh, Sean yes, Connery? Who got to go and fuck the prom king? But we'll go with last uh, best scene. Oh, this is a hard one, and I changed my mind so many times. I I love the scene of Renton's withdrawal because it is so iconic and it is so... Mm. You know, visceral most of Begbie scenes but you know what I'm going to give it to and it's the scene that made me laugh the most when I rewatched this and it's when Renton and Sick Boy are watching Tommy and Lizzie's porn video <laughs> and it is just the look on their faces <laughs> that they're just so nonplussed couldn't care watching their two friends have sex. It made me laugh so much watching it this time. I'm not saying that is the best scene in the film. It was the scene I found the best at this time. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to give it to Renton's withdrawal scene because there's just so much going on there. Everyone's involved. Everything is is happening. It's so iconic and it is so... You you feel it. And Ewan McGregor's acting is so good in that. So I know it's an uncomfortable scene to watch, but for me, that's my favourite scene of the film or best scene. Okay. I had, for me, my, my favourite scene is the, the opening scene where I'm running down Princess Street and cut in between them running away. They, you mentioned it before, the introductions to the characters playing football, that, that the kind of opening choose life monologue uh, in the everything that goes with it. I just, you know, I think, I mean, I think it's that is so iconic, you know? That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Best opening I can, I can think of in a very long time for film. I'm struggling. 
trying to think of anything better. Uh, and then, yeah, finally, the Sean Connery Award. So who who won the movie? Well, what do you think? Who are you going for? It's Ewan McGregor, right? It has to be. Now, what are we saying on this, like, in terms of... Right, it's Ewan McGregor in terms of actor, and Renton wins, wins the film because yeah. you could say Danny Boyle because he's gone on to... Yeah do well and have an Academy Award. If you mention train spotting to anyone, they'll say Begbie. He's certainly the he's certainly the the most memorable and certainly quotable character. Yeah. So for me, Bobby Carlyle as Begbie wins the movie for me. He is the only character that Arvin Welsh has written a spin-off solo book for. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the success of you know, without train spotting you probably wouldn't have had maybe you, know, you maybe would have had porno you might have had skag boys Arvin yeah. Welsh may have continued writing about these characters but without the success of Begbie you know, you've got the Blade Artist and that is a great book I mean yeah okay he's not the he's the only train spotting spin-off character obviously Arvin Welsh has written other books about spin-off characters like Juice Terry yeah I'd, I'd love a Juice Terry film <laughs> but I don't <laughs> think I don't think you could have that nowadays for me, Begbie wins this film. Yeah, I got yeah, yeah. You've convinced me. I think you're right. I think you're right. So I'll give it to you. <laughs> I did. I did find out that apparently Kelly McDonald, believe it or not, auditioned for the part of Trinity in the Matrix oh, after mm. being in Chainsaw. And she said, like that same that same interview that um, that I watched on TVAM or whatever. She said that. She said that she didn't read the script before she went for the audition. So she didn't... They were trying to explain it to her. She didn't have a fucking clue. They got her to do, like, some kind of punchy thing on, a like, a boxer's bag. That sort of runny punch thing that she said that, you know, she said that was rubbish. <laughs> so that was, like, 1999. So the same time that Ewan McGregor was being was Obi-Wan, she could have been yeah. Trinity in The Matrix. Yeah. So I think she's too short to be Trinity, I think. Yeah, I think Carrie-Anne Moss did pretty well there. Well, I could talk about train spotting all day, but uh, I guess we have to wrap it up. Yeah, I feel there's so much we haven't even covered, but we can leave that for another time. Hey, when we do the sequel, we can yeah, exactly. we dip can in more about the rest. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for yep, and ha- bringing this happy to birthday. the fore. And uh, happy 25th birthday, train spotting. It certainly doesn't feel like 25 years to me since the movie came out, but, uh, but yeah. I really enjoyed talking about it. But it's your choice for the next episode of The Swally. So what have you got for us? Uh, I think we've been quite heavy recently. We've just had train spotting. We've had Sweet 16 before. We had Highlander. (laughs) It's all been quite dark and quite heavy. And I think we need a little bit of light relief. And I think we all need a holiday. So I would quite like to take a flight on Air Scotia. And look at the mid-90s BBC Scotland sitcom The High Life, starring Alan Cumming and Forbes Masson. Brilliant. I never never watched The High Life when it was in the telly, so... Did you not? Have you seen it since, or have you ever seen it? I think I've seen bits of it, but... um... Yeah, I've not seen enough. I've not. I've not seen a lot of it, to be honest. I've never seen any bits and bobs of it. But yeah, no, that's good. I look forward to watching that. I watched it a lot when it was on. I mean, it only ran for one series, like seven episodes, um, if you right. include the pilot. But yeah, I watched it religiously when it was on. So I, I'll look forward to hearing your take on it then, if you haven't seen much of it. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you'd like to get in touch with us, follow us on Instagram at Culture Pod 
or email us with anything you would like us to review or any stories you'd like us to cover on cultureswally at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at swallypod. And I'd never say this before, but if you listen to us, please rate, review and subscribe with us on iTunes. It does make a difference and it would be great if you could if you could do that. So thank you very much, everyone. And until next time, see you later. Choose life, Nikki. Choose life. <laughs>